Hello, I'm Laura Landon. Welcome to the New Books Network Journalism Podcast, celebrating the 150th birthday of The Nation magazine. Like the folks you meet on, like to plant my feet on the Brooklyn Bridge. That's Old Blue Eyes himself, warbling about the Brooklyn Bridge. What a lovely view from heaven looks at you from the Brooklyn Bridge. Frank Sinatra's enthusiasm for the Brooklyn Bridge has been shared by millions since May 24, 1883. That's when the Brooklyn Bridge first opened. The Nation covered that event, and Richard Kreitner, the magazine's archivist, chose it for his May 24 entry on the Almanac, his daily blog celebrating the Nation's 150th anniversary. Other events that the nation covered in the last week of May include the opening of the film Star Wars in 1977, the publication of Rachel Carson's famous book Silent Spring in 1962, and the Bonus Army's March on Washington in the depths of the Great Depression. We reached Richard Kreitner at the nation's offices in New York. The interviewer is Bruce Wark. Richard, the first event of the week this week in the Almanac is the opening of the Brooklyn Bridge on May 24th, 1883. Uh, What did the nation have to say about that? Sure. Well, the uh, bridge had begun construction in 1869 and faced repeated setbacks, uh, many of which were political in nature, referring to uh, the boat traffic on the river and whatnot. And so the nation, when the the bridge opened, covered it in its... uh, introductory section of the magazine called Summary of the News, and this is what they said. The event of the week was the formal opening on Thursday of the Great Suspension Bridge across the East River uniting New York and Brooklyn. In Brooklyn, the day was made a holiday and business in New York was partly suspended. Both cities were decorated, the former in great profusion. One of the events of the day was a reception at the house in Brooklyn of Colonel W.A. Roebling, the invalid chief engineer who has directed the great work since his father's death. About 1,000 guests attended, including the president. A reception was given to President Arthur and Governor Cleveland in the Brooklyn Academy of Music at 9 o'clock in the evening. The bridge was thrown open to the public at midnight, and thousands of people went across in the early hours of the morning. All day Friday, the crowds continued to cross, and for several days, the regular traffic was great. The ferry companies noted a great falling off in receipts. Yes, the opening of the Brooklyn Bridge was quite an event, and I noticed that uh, in 1981, Ken Burns made his very first film about the Brooklyn Bridge, and uh, here's the trailer from it, pretty enthusiastic-sounding celebration of the bridge. It was the biggest bridge in the world. Everyone in Brooklyn and New York agreed. It had absolutely no rivals. The bridge was the vision of John A. Roebling, an immigrant, a genius, civil engineer and it was finally completed under the most difficult circumstances imaginable by his son Washington Roebling the bridge was half again as big as any built before it its two stone towers were taller than any structure on either shore taller than anything else on the entire North American continent the roadway of the bridge was as spacious as Fifth Avenue down the center of the roadway above the traffic was an elevated promenade where people could go to enjoy the views of the bay and of the cities as never before. And the distinctive network of cables that suspended the bridge was made of steel. 
the new metal of a new age. That was a trailer for Ken Burns' PBS film in 1981 on the Brooklyn Bridge. My favorite, my just, I just wanted to say my favorite thing about the um, the piece that I read is is the the last line about the ferry company noting a great falling off in receipts. You know, the the ferry companies were put out of business by the Brooklyn Bridge, and I just think it's funny to see in real time the way that um, you know technologies kind of succeed each other and um, and and put each other out of business. Well, that's the opening of the Brooklyn Bridge in 1883. Quite a technological feat. And for your next event in the Almanac, your daily blog on how the nation covered events over the years, uh, you flash forward all the way to 1977. And uh, did the event then that you focus on also have a technological theme? It does. Well, that's the day, uh, May 25th, 1977, that Star Wars, the first episode, or I suppose the fourth episode, but the first film um, opened in theaters. And I see that your film critic, uh, Robert Hatch, had uh, quite an interesting review uh, on the opening of Star Wars. And I I, I wonder how you would describe it. Sure. Well, I I would describe it as judicious. I mean, he's he's willing to to compliment it and give it give it um, certain merits. But in the end, uh, you know, we'll we'll hear his judgment. I wonder, Richard Kreitner, if you would read from the. A Robert Hatch review that appeared in The Nation when the film opened. Certainly. Well, just just a few words about Robert Hatch first. He was uh, The Nation's longtime film critic and, and a great film critic, and as well as a former managing editor and executive editor, and he died, I think, in around 1994. Um, just wanted to give him a little shout-out there. Uh, so here's, here's what he said about Star Wars, uh, the first film. Years from now, long after the last bucket of popcorn has been eaten at the last neighborhood showing of Star Wars... Film buffs will be regaling one another with recollections of their favorite scenes and persons. The frontier bar patronized by the offspring of improbable matings, I liked the elephant slash crocodile. The entrapment within a huge garbage compactor, courtesy of Edgar Allan Poe. The deal with cold light swords. The bombing run down a narrow chasm to the one vulnerable spot in the Death Star. The poignant falling out of the two robots in a bow jest stretch of desert, the amiable but quick-tempered seven-foot man-bear navigator of the spaceship. (laughs) I guess he's talking about Chewbacca there. The bustling little brown-habited dwarfs with flashlight eyes who sell second-hand automatons from a cave in the wilderness, and of course Luke Skywalker, the very fair-haired boy who discovers that he too possesses the Force. All in all, it is an outrageously successful, what will be called a classic, compilation of nonsense, largely derived but thoroughly reconditioned. I doubt that anyone will ever match it, though the imitations must already be on the drawing boards. Somewhere in space, this may all be happening right now. 20th Century Fox and George Lucas, the man who brought you American graffiti, now bring you an adventure unlike anything on your planet. Star Wars. Here they come. Coming in too fast. The story of a boy, a girl, and a universe. Richard Kreitner, in your blog, the daily blog you're running during the 150th anniversary 
150th year anniversary of the uh, nation. Uh, your next story has to do with uh, man and other pests. What is that one? That was the name of a book review that we ran um, in 1962, I believe, um, of Rachel Carson's groundbreaking environmentalist book, Silent Spring. Yeah, and I think you say that you have to cringe at the, the headline over that review, Man and Other Pests. Sort of, because uh, Rachel Carson's book, along with books by Betty Friedan and, and, and others from the early 60s, was you know one of the first um, widely hailed and accepted um, you know intellectual contributions by by a woman in America. Um, that that was that, and that totally revolutionized you know the the culture of, of thought um, in the United States. And so to to headline that review, I mean, I understand it was the it was, it's a function of the time, but still, man and other pests in a, in a book about such an important book written by women is is a bit difficult to read. Right, although it could be read another way, I suppose. You could say that uh, man is a pest and that uh, Rachel Carson is pointing that out. Right, that's true. That's a good point. Well, I see that the book review was written by Marston Bates, who was a zoologist and an expert on insects himself and a best-selling author as well. At least he published a science book called The Forest and the Sea. So, um, yeah, interesting to have one expert commenting on the work of another. That was actually a nation innovation uh, back in when it was founded in 1865. The nation is considered sort of the first journal to um, specifically make a habit out of sending books to experts in that particular field to review, whereas previously the practice had been to just send any, any book to any smart person and have them write about it. Richard, I wonder if you could read from Marston Bates's review of uh, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. Certainly. Miss Carson is indignant about the unexpected effects of our thoughtless broadcasting of pesticides. She writes persuasively, for she has taken great pains to gather and check her facts. Parts of the book were published in the New Yorker magazine last summer, and immediately provoked wide interest, discussion, and controversy. This reaction will undoubtedly intensify with the publication of the book. No one is in a better position than Miss Carson to arouse the indignation of the public and the conscience of the chemical industry, and it may well be that she has made a real contribution to our salvation. From Chapter 17 of Silent Spring by Rachel Carson The current vogue for poisons has utterly failed to take into account these most fundamental considerations. As crude a weapon as the caveman's club, the chemical barrage has been hurled against the fabric of life, a fabric on the one hand delicate and destructible, on the other miraculously tough and resilient, and capable of striking back in unexpected ways. These extraordinary capacities of life have been ignored by the practitioners of chemical control, who have brought to their task no high-minded orientation, no humility, before the vast forces with which they tamper. The control of nature is a phrase conceived in arrogance, born of the Neanderthal age of biology and philosophy, when it was supposed that nature exists for the convenience of man. The concepts and practices of applied entomology for the most part date from that stone age of science. It is our alarming misfortune that so primitive a science has armed itself with the most modern and terrible weapons, and that in turning them against the insects, it has also turned them against the earth. 
Your next story of this week in May is the Bonus Army marches to Washington. I'd never heard of the Bonus Army. What was that? The Bonus Army, I remember learning about this in, in, um, in high school. It was a group of uh, disgruntled, angry, homeless, jobless um, World War I veterans who, who were looking for the federal... It was in the midst of the Depression, and, and times were extremely hard, and Hoover was still president. It was the summer before FDR was elected. And the uh, veterans, around 40,000 of them, gathered in Washington, D.C. to sort of pressure in a pretty, um, in a pretty in- intense and, and forceful way to pressure the federal government to advance them the bonuses that they were due um, it's so, to, so as to allow them to kind of survive those trying times. And yet, as so often is the case with protests, even today, Congress was uh, not very sympathetic. No, no, they, they broke up the protests. I think some veterans were shot at. Uh, no, they, they suppressed them. Eventually, um, the sort of fear around it was sort of dissipated because FDR, when he became president less than a year later, instituted a massive uh, jobs program that most of the veterans worked their way into. Now, the nation's um, coverage of it, July 27th, 1932, uh, has the headline, The Bonus Army Scares Mr. Hoover. And certainly, Herbert Hoover, who was then president, does not come across well at all in this piece by uh, Moritz A. Hallgren. Um, uh, Could you read an excerpt from it for us? Certainly. Well, I think this is a fascinating piece because it uh, describes the whole ferment of the country at the time. There is throughout the country a stirring among the unemployed such as we have not witnessed before, certainly not in the present period of depression. Individuals and families by the thousands have taken to migrating from community to community, not necessarily to seek greener pastures, better economic opportunities, but to escape from the misery and suffering at home. They are at last reaching the point where they can no longer endure the hardships of unemployment and haphazard charity. Only a few weeks ago, I saw them by the scores walking singly or in groups along the highways of Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, and Michigan. Many were carrying the last of their worldly possessions in old suitcases or tied up in bundles. Those I stopped and talked with said they did not know where they were going. They wanted only to get away from home. It was inevitable, although essentially accidental, that the men among them who feel that they have had claim against the government for their services should concentrate upon Washington. Thus, the bonus march must be considered simply a minor manifestation of the unrest spreading through the country. And and Holgren's piece, which is a fairly long one, does give a very stark uh, picture of depression times in the U.S. Absolutely, and the depression before Roosevelt became president, which which um, certainly alleviated some of the the worst effects of the depression. Yeah, reading that piece, I I had forgotten that they called some of the encampments uh, that went up for homeless people Hoovervilles. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, Um, Hoover was not a very sympathetic uh, figure at that point. And uh, FDR, you know, tried to pull the country out of the Depression. It seems that the nation, uh, with Hallgren's piece, is um, was really horrified by the depression. That's absolutely right. Well, he was he was basically our depression correspondent, if you will, uh, for the next several years. He continued to report from from the cities on 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 strife and on bread lines and everything. Yeah, the nation was totally horrified. I think also sort of galvanized by it because they thought, you know, 
this is the crisis we've been waiting for. Um, they, they ended up vote, uh, endorsing Norman Thomas, who was FDR's socialist opponent in the 1932 election. The, the nation thought the Depression was sort of a, um, a great opportunity for, uh, you know, for, for the lower classes. And what happened with the nation later? Did it then um, start to support FDR and his New Deal? I'm, you know, I'm not entirely sure. I, I certainly after certainly starting in around 1940, because they were major supporters of an interventionist foreign policy um, and and the U.S. getting into World War II to fight against fascism. I think that they also endorsed Norman Thomas in 1936. Which I can um, I can check on, and then from there I think sort of didn't look back as far as supporting, for the most part, um, people on the left, but within the Democratic Party. Now, one other thing I notice about this piece by Moritz Hallgren is that it's not like a typical magazine piece of today, and that there are few quotes in it, but lots of eyewitness description of, from Hallgren himself. And yet you really see vivid pictures there. Was that a kind of style of the nation in those days where correspondents would file their own personal observations rather than today a lot of journalists rely on others' descriptions and and quotes from other people describing things? Uh, This seems to be he had the authority to say what was happening himself. Right. I think there was generally much more leeway given for literary flair within journalism um, back then. And in fact, I, I, well, I suppose The Nation itself is a different kind of magazine, different than Newsweek or Time, in that um, it's, a, it's, it's partly literary too. Right. That's, there's, that definitely still exists um, in the magazine, but I think you're right. I think that, um, that there is less willingness for reporters to sort of just go on in their own voice which uh, the causes of that, I would need to sit down and think kind of hard about, I think. <laughs> yes. Related, I guess, to objectivity and all of those kinds of uh, uh, ways that journalists work. That's right. I mean, the, the nation doesn't tell its journalists to, to pretend to any kind of objectivity. So if, if that were responsible for this change, it would have to be in, in a more subtle way, I think. Um, but I, I would possibly consider that, as, you know, that, that the journalist is, is not supposed to just uh, just to go around and, and talk about their own observations, that you want to interview the people who are really being affected, which I sort of see as maybe even a political change as well. Well, Richard, from the Brooklyn Bridge to the Bonus Army, quite a, a range of uh, topics and events in the nation this week. Absolutely. We've got um, film criticism. We have a summary of the news, of, of a major news event, which was the opening of the Brooklyn Bridge, um, the origins of modern environmentalism with Rachel Carson. And, and also, I, I find the Bonus Army so interesting, I want to say, because you constantly hear on the streets um, of New York, possibly not of, uh, of Nova Scotia where you are, but, um, you know, uh, can, can anyone help out a homeless veteran? You know, these issues are still very much with us whenever we have both war and economic suffering. Well, Richard Kreitner, author of The Almanac and uh, The Nation's Archivist, thank you so much for joining us this week. Thanks, Bruce. See you next week. (laughs) 
You've been listening to a New Books Network podcast on how The Nation magazine covered events in the last week of May. The Nation celebrates its 150th birthday this July. Join us next week as Nation archivist Richard Kreitner tells us about events The Nation covered in the first week of June. I'm Laura Landon. See you then. Thank you.